Hi. Today we're replaying one of our very first episodes. It's perfect for this holiday season. It's about a daughter contemplating how to give a really big gift to her mom, even though her mom's pretty reluctant to receive it. It's a really touching episode and hopefully a great one to listen to with the people that you love. And we'll see you next week with a brand new episode, How to Make Your New Year's Resolution Stick. Thanks so much for listening. I think she just kind of wants like a kidney to land in her mailbox, you know, to have like no associated guilt or worry about the donor. And I said, but if I take it out, it's not going to be any good to me anymore. You might as well. Like I would hand it to her on a plate and she would, you know, have to out of good manners take it. But she said, no, I won't take it. I won't take your kidney. This is How To, a show where we help people figure out the answers to life's most important questions. I'm Charles Duhigg. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to talk to someone who's facing an excruciating decision and ask, how do you get at peace with making a huge sacrifice? How, how do you plunge in when there's something you know you ought to do, but you're scared? Because this choice will cause you pain and suffering. And in the end, might not even help the person you're doing it for. My name is Mary. I live in Utah and am a mother and a daughter and a sister and I work in research. And, and how many kids do you have? I have four. My youngest is 12 and my oldest is 19. Mary contacted us because she's very close to her family. Her, her dad passed away a few years ago and her mom, who lives close by, She's been dealing with a health problem for years. And, and because Mary works in medical research and because she and her mom have this really strong relationship, Mary's been the one to help her mom navigate through all these health issues. So, so tell, me, tell me about your mom. Um, I'm very, very close to my mom. I talk to her every day. We're very good friends. And I also admire and care for her deeply. We, we're just tight. We're very tight. Mary didn't want me to use her real name because the question she's trying to answer, it's really sensitive and it's really, really hard. Well, for about two years, I've been kind of struggling with the decision of whether to donate a kidney to my mom who is in kidney failure. And do you feel like this is something that you have to decide right now? So her nephrologist says that it's kind of a miracle that she has been at the level she is for as long as she has, that that's not what they expected at all, but that he expects that total failure will come not as a gradual slope, but as like a catastrophic drop. And that could happen at any moment. It could happen anytime. We really are one bad cold away from needing to make this decision now. Now, odds are good that you're probably thinking to yourself, of course you should donate a kidney to your mom. She's your mom. She needs a kidney. But that's easy to say when this question is theoretical. It's a lot harder when the decision is staring you in the face and it means going into surgery and weeks of recovery and taking real risks. So how does Mary figure out how to give her mom this really big gift? Keep listening to find out. So, so take me back a little bit. Um, leading up to your mom's kidney failure, what, what was going on in your life? Well, my parents had both had health issues. So I had been helping with my dad's illness, and then my mom got cancer. And she did survive the cancer, though there were some 
you know, some pretty big effects on her body. One of the effects of the radiation she had was kidney failure. And what's what's your mom's like day to day? Like, what's her quality of life like right now? It's low. It's very low. Why? Um, she sleeps a lot. You have like no energy. One of the things that happens with kidney failure is that you stop being able to make the hormone that tells your body to produce red blood cells, which is incidentally the same hormone that Lance Armstrong was abusing. But um, my mom gets injections of it to tell her body to make red blood cells. So you're just always on the edge of this terrible anemia. Um, the dietary restrictions are very strict. I like to say that the heuristic for kidney diet is, does it taste good? Do you like it? You can't eat it. <laughs> um, she just really spends her life sitting in her chair. How does it make you feel to see her like that? Well, it's kind of terrible. And she was a very involved mom when I was a kid. And it's hard because I know she would like to be the kind of grandma who's taking her grandkids on outings and doing fun things with them. She'll she'll try and then she'll pay for it. She'll sometimes have episodes of vomiting. She'll she'll be so exhausted for the next 48 hours, like really physically ill just from fatigue. So that's really hard to see. Donating a kidney is a big deal. In in most cases, there's no long-term health impact from losing a kidney. But recovering from the surgery can take months. And people who donate they can be at risk for high blood pressure and other medical conditions. And, and obviously, if Mary ever had a problem with her remaining kidney, she wouldn't have the other one to take up the slack. This is a surgery where you do have a choice. A doctor said to me recently, there's not a single problem that surgery can't make worse. You hear stories about people who just never quite feel the same. A close friend of one of my cousins donated her kidney to her father, and she... She was in probably her late 20s when she did it. And what I have heard is that she never got back to her baseline, that she she was in really kind of a peak physical condition. She was an athlete, this donor, and she just never felt like herself again. Yeah. And I have a lot on my shoulders. I have, you know, my kids and my husband and, you know, and I work. So these are all things that depend on me. And it's a little frightening to think about making a step that's irrevocable, that could infringe on my ability to do those those things well. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense to me. I'm sure that there are a lot of kidney donors who have felt good or who have felt like that that trade-off was worth it. That's another thing nagging Mary. Let's say she does donate her kidney to her mom. What if it doesn't make that big of a difference? She has a lot of health issues that stem from her cancer treatment. The kidneys are the most pressing, but there are others that are also infringing on her quality of life. And that makes it a little bit harder because this isn't going to be a 100% cure. There will still be a lot of problems. And then there's this. Her mom really doesn't want her to do it. When I told her I was starting testing, that I had reached out to the transplant department and was starting talking with one of the coordinators, she was kind of devastated, I think. What did she say? She said, no, I won't take it. I won't take your kidney. And I said, but if I, if, if I take it out, it's not going to be any good to me anymore. You might as well. And, you know, we kind of laughed it off. Like, 
like I would hand it to her on a plate and she would, you know, have to out of good manners take it. I don't know, I think she has very deep disquiet at the idea of me donating. I've thought about it a lot and I've prayed about it a lot and I don't feel an urgency right now. And maybe that's my own kind of coping mechanism that I, you know, I, I don't feel ready to make the decision, so I'm just not. But that's kind of where I am emotionally with it. Despite the fact that she doesn't feel an urgency right now, Mary's been thinking about this choice a lot. Enough to ask us for help. Because in theory, we all want to believe that we're prepared to make sacrifices for the people we love. But when we're confronted with these decisions in real life, like like right now, you have to decide right now, that's when things become a lot more complicated. And so we turn to someone who has studied choices like this. More after this quick break. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. 
A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Okay. So, uh, Larissa, if you don't mind just starting with, like, my name is, and then however you want to introduce yourself. Now? Sure, go for it. Uh, my name is Larissa McFarker, and I am I'm the author of Strangers Drowning, Impossible Idealism, Drastic Choices, and the Urge to Help about people with very strong senses of ethical duty. Larissa's book examines how people make decisions about helping other people, especially when those choices cause real hardships. She studied people who have donated organs to strangers and, and who have adopted dozens of children, people who do things that are unequivocally good. And she asks... Why don't all of us do that? Why is making altruistic choices so hard sometimes? I was interested in finding people with a very strong sense of ethical duty and finding out what made them tick, what kept them committed when, you know, I think a lot of us start out as children having high ideals and then we somehow lose them. These people don't lose them. How? Why? What, 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 what is different about them? What's interesting is that when we hear about someone doing something spontaneously heroic, We applaud it. And we tend to assume that we would do something spontaneously heroic ourselves. That's why it's natural to say, yeah, Mary, you should just donate the kidney. Why is she even hesitating about this? It's like, you know, if you ran into a burning building and saved the life of your mother, you would feel like a hero for the rest of your life. It would be something so important to the story of your life and you, your whole family would think of you as a hero. But when we have time to think about doing something risky and heroic, suddenly, Larissa says, that's when things get harder. You start thinking to yourself, and, and other people start asking you, what about your own health? What about your obligations to your kids? Is it right for you to do this? Especially if your mom says she doesn't even want your kidney? You know, the difference between these circumstances is that running into a burning building is something you don't have time to think about. And this is the one of the complicated things about kidney donation. You have endless time to think about it. They force on you endless time to think about it, partly because transplant centers are very careful to make sure that no one is donating when they don't really want to, if they don't feel free to say no. And also, just the physical process involves enormous numbers of tests to make sure that you are a good recipient, that your health will will be able to cope with the surgery, and so you have nothing but time. So here's the interesting thing about this. You haven't donated a kidney. I have not. Neither have I. But we walk past burning buildings all the time. There's a long list of people who need kidneys, who, whose lives would be better. Why haven't you done it? Oh, I think about it. I do think about it. But I, you know, I should probably think about it more carefully because the older you get, the less valuable your kidney is. And, and, and I'll say for the record, I feel the same way, right? If, if someone was to ask me, should I donate a kidney? I'd say, of course you should. Like communalism says that we're supposed to actually actively help each other go out. And yet I have never gotten signed up for a match test. I've never done anything. You know, I think this is the difference between the sort of person I was writing about in that book and most of us. I think, you know, most of us would feel a sense of obligation if a need was presented to us right in front of our faces. If we walked past the burning building or the drowning person. Exactly, exactly. But 
in the absence of that pressing, right in front of your face appeal, most of us don't think about doing such a large thing. There's this very famous psychological experiment where uh, a group of divinity students were told that they had to give a lecture on the Good Samaritan. And on their way over there, there was somebody uh, faking it, lying at the side of the road in need of help. And the ones who were told that they were on time and had plenty of time between now and the lecture often stopped to help. The ones who were told they were late did not. And, you know, that's just being late for a lecture. But that small, everyday, superficial, anxious consideration was enough to deter them from helping. And I think that's a lot of what deters most of us most of the time. In other words, Mary's like most of us. She's hesitating and she's asking herself questions and having doubts. And that's totally normal. And so one of the ways we can help Mary is by figuring out, are her doubts and questions, are they legitimate? Or, or, or is she overthinking things? Researchers who study situations like this have found that there are ways, methods that people can use to help us figure out when we should listen to our hesitations and when we should ignore them. One of those systems is something called time frame thinking. For instance, Mary has been really concerned about the short-term impact this surgery might have on her ability to take care of her kids. I go back to when, when my dad was dying and there were a lot of holes that didn't get filled in my children's lives. I just didn't have the energy. And looking back, I'm like, that was an awful lot of sleepovers X kid had at Y kid's house. And I think that there were some negative things that came out of that. And maybe that seems like a small thing, but when you look back five years later, they can look really significant. But what if, instead of focusing on the short-term time frame, the immediate impacts on our kids, what if Mary focused on the long-term impacts on her children? Larissa asked, what if you engage in time frame thinking to stretch out this choice, to ask how it will affect your kids years from now? Here's what Larissa had to say. You know, if I were a child and watched my mother take this risk, which was not an enormous risk to my life, I wasn't taking a serious risk to not being their mother anymore. So it wouldn't feel as though uh, I were choosing the mother over the children. But doing something painful and difficult in order to vastly improve the life of her mother, their grandmother, I would be, I I think it would be an extraordinary thing in my whole childhood to see something that heroic and that loving take place in my family. I think that would be more mothering than she could possibly do in those six weeks. I think there's a lot of truth in what she says. I like what she says about seeing the example of, of love and generosity and mothering. I mean, that's a very... It's a very positive way to look at it. I totally understand that if if my wife was out for six weeks, our entire house would fall apart, honestly. Mm-hmm. If you were asking me right now to guess what would happen, you know, when she finally got out of bed, the children would be like living in rags and we would be, you know, scavenging <laughs> for food. <laughs> but at the same time, one thing I, I could see happening is we actually have to learn how to make do. Right. If my wife isn't there and we've been relying on her, or if you're 
if you're not there for your kids, that they might have to learn how to take care of themselves a little bit more. If you think about that, if, if you I, were to open yourself to that possibility, is that likely or is it totally unlikely? No, I think that's likely. I think that's likely. I go back to when, when my dad was dying, which took about a year, and my mom was very sick and in and out of the hospital. It all happened at once. And that year, I really felt like my family did step up, like they took over so many of my responsibilities and they did really grow up in a lot of ways that were really positive. There's also another approach Larissa suggests for making a big, hard decision like this. Try, insofar as it's possible, to imagine how you will feel after you've made one choice or the other. There's a name for this method of thinking about choices. It's called future casting. And the reason future casting is so helpful is because we all have a natural tendency to see the future as binary outcomes. E either things go great or they don't. But of course, that's not really how life works. Reality is a mix of good and bad, no matter what choice we make. So what if we were to imagine for a moment all the possible outcomes from a decision and figure out which ones would be easier or harder to live with? Future casting pushes us to think about how we'll feel after the stress of deciding is over. It helps clear up which choices we can live with and which ones we can't. So suppose you decide not to donate and your mother's health predictably deteriorates and she probably dies before she's 70 um, and lives a pretty blighted life before that. How will that strike you? How will it make you feel about your relationship with your mother or your relationship with yourself? Um, on the other hand, suppose you do donate and other predictable dynamics come into play. Possibly complicated relationships with your mother, though maybe not. Um, you know, suppose now I've sketched out a scenario where the children would be proud of their mother and excited to have the, the chance to take care of her for once and to help her as she usually helps them. But suppose they don't react like that. Suppose they're just resentful and they think, she's our mother. How can she abandon us? Um, suppose her husband feels the same way. Um, she needs to, as best she can, think about how she would feel if the less good scenarios, some of them, came into play afterwards in either case, and how is she going to feel about the choice she made? Is that helpful? Yeah. So when she talks about the, you know, go down the path of not giving the kidney and my mom continuing in ill health and dying prematurely, like that idea is just intolerable. And when you think about, when you think about what your mom's life would be like after she got your kidney, like tell me how it's different. Like what, what, is, what is she doing every day or every week that she can't do now? I would hope that she would just be able to do more of the things that she enjoys, that she would be able to do her own shopping trips. A lot of the time now she can't. She'll have one of my kids or one of my brothers or sisters go into the store for her. You know, she'll wait in the car if she even goes at all. 
um, because she just can't walk around a store. I would hope that she'd be able to do a little bit of traveling, which she really loves. And I would hope that she would be able to be more actively involved in the lives of her grandchildren, which she really wants to be. Things like going to performances, going to games that she just doesn't have the energy to do now, but that would really mean a lot to her. And how would that make you feel if if you saw your mom going on a trip or if you saw her coming to a game or walking around the store? That would just feel amazing to see her being healthy. I see women her age who are so active, who are able to do so much with their families and for themselves, you know, able to live these rich lives because she's not that old. She's only in her mid-60s. And I want that for her desperately. Finally, there's one other method Larissa suggested for analyzing this decision, for, for finding peace with Mary's choice. Until now, Mary has been almost completely focused on how donating a kidney will affect other people, how it'll impact her mom or her kids. But what if Mary turns that on its head and she focuses entirely on herself? What would donating this kidney mean to Mary? Larissa has spoken to a lot of people who have donated kidneys. Every single one of them was so proud of what they did. They all felt, here is something grand that I did. Here is something unambiguously good, and I can be proud of this for the rest of my life. And whatever else I do, and however else I fail as a person, this is something that no one can take away from me. And that's a big thing in a person's life. And there aren't that many chances to do something like that. I talked to one man uh, who donated a kidney. He woke up from surgery, and his first emotion was to be really pissed off. Why? Because the doctors who thought he was weird for wanting to do something so altruistic had given him a lot of grief, uh, really made him jump through hoops to prove that he really wanted to do it. And when he got out of surgery, he felt so good that he thought they had not done it. He thought that surgery had not happened because the doctors had chickened out and he was really mad. He felt so good. Now, I'm talking to people who donate to strangers who they've, in some cases, never even met and they feel this way. If it's your mother, how much more important? Studies show that 90% of people who donate a kidney recover fully within six months. They they never have any long-term health issues and that 96% of donors say they would donate again. What do you think of what Larissa said about how people feel after they donate? First is I agree, I mean it is. It's, I can see where it would be something you would always be proud of. And it is heroic. On the other hand, I'm not quite sure how to express this. Um, It's like, is there any self-centeredness in me looking at that grand gesture does that make any sense at all yeah like like it's so it's so big it almost feels selfish well not selfish that's the wrong word but self-aggrandizing in a way yeah like when my when my brothers will laugh on christmas and say you always make the rest of us look bad you know why do you have to give the best gift And this really is the best gift. Like, there's no better gift. Yeah. And I have to admit, like, that's a piece of me. That's a piece of my personality. 
it's a piece of my identity. You know, I always, when I was a kid, I thought I would be one of those people who grew up and adopted 27 kids from Haiti or something. Like, that's very much an appealing identity to me. And I'm not sure it's always the best part of my identity because I think there can be a lot of damage when you adopt 27 kids. Yeah. You know, it, it it's a complicated situation. It's not a clear-cut good, always. Do you worry that maybe you're not actually considering this because it's the right thing to do for your mom, but because you just want to feel good, good. about myself? Yeah. I guess a little, or I wouldn't have thought about it. And can I just say, you know, as I've spoken to a lot of people who have done good in this world, and and a number of them do great things for less noble reasons. You don't strike me as one of those people. <laughs> I mean, the fact that even you're struggling with this and that you're honest enough with yourself to say that you are struggling with this choice. The way that you're describing this, you do not strike me as a person who does altruism for selfish reasons. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. Let me ask one more question. Let's say tomorrow you find out that you have kidney failure. If it was one of your sons, and let's say they're 21, and you feel like they're, they're young, responsible, and they said, Mom, I want to do this for you. And they said exactly what you've said to me. They say, look, I'm actually torn, but despite that, I've decided I want to give you my kidney. What would you tell them? I guess I would say thank you. So how are you feeling now about this hard decision that you asked us to help you figure out? I actually, the clips that you played me were very helpful, and this discussion was very helpful. I I think I feel more secure in, in the possibility of donating. When push comes to shove, if it happens that the decision needs to be made tomorrow, I would donate. Before we go, as a last note, it's worth noting that despite all the squeamishness about kidney donations that we discussed in this episode, studies do show that it is one of the safest surgeries. There are over 120,000 Americans on the U.S. kidney donation waiting list right now. And though you should never take medical advice from a podcast and should definitely talk to a doctor about choices like this, if you're interested in learning more about becoming a kidney donor, you can find lots of information at the National Kidney Foundation, which is at www.kidney.org. Thank you so much to Mary for talking with us. And as a, a quick follow-up, Mary called to let us know that she decided definitively that she's willing to give her mom a kidney, and, and her mother has agreed to take it. Since then, her mom's health has actually improved slightly, and so they're waiting to see when surgery will be necessary. And a special thanks as well to Larissa McFarker for all of her wonderful advice. If you're interested in this topic, I can't recommend strongly enough her beautiful book, Strangers Drowning, Impossible Idealism, Drastic Choices, and the Urge to Help. Do you have a question about how to do something? Anything? 
we are here to help. Drop us a note at howtoatslate.com. And if you like what you heard today, please tell a friend and, and give us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. Thanks. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rachel Allen is our production assistant and Merritt Jacob is our engineer. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts and Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Special thanks to Asha Saluja and Sung Park. I'm Charles Duhigg. Thanks for listening.